just how important is our body? Now, that may seem a ridiculous question because every pain we feel reminds us it's very important. And some get reminders quite regularly. The older we get, the more reminders we get. But really, how important is our body? And particularly as a Christian, how important is our body? You know, we, we talk about the spirit more than we do the body. And Paul told us to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. So, again, really, how important is our body? You know, many of the philosophers and mystics of years gone by looked down on the body and saw it of little value. To them, the important thing was the soul, the the spirit of man. And that often led them to one of two extremes. Now, thinking that the body was even less than unimportant, that it was actually evil and wicked, led some to a rigorous asceticism. And in an attempt to demonstrate their disdain for physical pleasures, they would wear scratchy clothing, they would go without food, and even spend years sitting on a pole to avoid temptation. The other extreme was complete indulgence. Since the body was of no importance, you could do whatever you wanted with it. It didn't matter. You could sate and glut its appetites because the body was of no significance. Now, needless to say, the second option was more popular. And it was the prevailing philosophy or excuse in Corinth. So which, which was right? Obviously, neither was right. For as C.S. Lewis pointed out, Satan is always sending errors in pairs, which are opposites. His great hope is that we'll get so upset about one of the errors that we will swing into the other. Well, if neither is right, what should a Christian's attitude be about his body? Again, just how important is our body? Well, to answer that question, Paul beautifully links our bodies with all three aspects of the Trinity. He shows how our relationship to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit affect our understanding of the importance of our bodies. That as Christians, We need to recognize that our bodies were created by God, have been joined to Christ, and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, the implication of that truth is life-changing. Let's see how. We're in the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians, verses 12 through 14. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, 
but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. All things are indeed lawful for us in Christ. But liberty is not license. And it's quite possible that Paul was quoting the Corinthians, quoting him when he wrote, All things are lawful for me. But it's true. You know, under the law, there were things that were against the law. We are no longer under the law. But the fact that we are free from the law does not change God's eternal moral principles. We are not free to be immoral. Christians aren't free to do anything wrong they want. They are free to do everything right and good, freed from the power of sin to live full and joyful lives. We're not free to sin, but free not to sin. To help us understand that, Paul adds to the quotation, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Not everything is good for me. And he adds in chapter 10, verse 23, Not all things edify. Not everything builds me up, helps me to be what God intends me to be. So there are limits to my liberty. My liberty is limited by God's intention in creation. Is a bear free to fly? Or a fish free to climb trees? You know, if either creature exercised that kind of freedom, you can imagine what would happen. Well, just as a bear or fish is most free when living according to the rules of nature, so a person is most free when doing what God created him to do. So not everything we might want to do is profitable. And some of the things we may want to do can actually enslave us. Paul repeats the phrase, all things are lawful to me, but adds the second time, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now that in and of itself is a limit on liberty. We've been set free from sin and are not to put ourselves back into bondage to the flesh. You know, many things we may want to do while not necessarily sinful or evil in themselves, have a way of enslaving us. And it is here that a Christian should find a strong warning about smoking, drinking, using other recreational drugs, or doing anything that has the potential to take control of him and master him. We're not to be once again mastered by the flesh after being set free. Paul then moves 
to counter a proverb that the Corinthians were apparently using to justify free expression of sexual desires on the basis of creation. They said, food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. God created the stomach for digestion, and he created food to be digested. If the stomach doesn't get what it was intended to get, it will let us know. We will get hungry. In the same way, they argued, we have sexual appetites. And God gave us the organs needed to satisfy those appetites. So sex is on the same level as eating. It's simply a natural biological function. Now, that certainly sounds contemporary, doesn't it? But Paul countered that in a very interesting way. He began by admitting that food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. But he added, both the stomach and food are temporary. Their purpose will someday come to an end. The body as a whole, however, is more than a temporary physical organ. And it certainly was not created for immorality, but for the Lord. He had a higher purpose in giving us a body than simply giving us the means to satisfy physical urges. If they wanted a correlating proverb to food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, Paul said it's the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. God created our bodies and he has a special purpose for them and it is not immorality. It's not fornication. That's a better translation of that word. It is true that God gave us sexual urges, but they are more than simple hungers to be satisfied. They are urges to explore our total personhood as well as to obviously reproduce. The sexual relationship isn't like eating a meal. It's the union of two persons on every level, physical, emotional, and spiritual. And Paul's going to have more to say about that. But his point here is quite simply that God made our bodies and he has a purpose for them, an eternal purpose for them. For not only did God raise up Jesus, he will one day raise us up through his power. And as Jesus rose bodily, so will we have a bodily resurrection. Now, our body will be different. It will be changed into a different form. It will no longer be limited by physical laws and will no longer need to eat to stay alive. The nutritive system forms no part of the permanent self. It belongs to the passing. So the stomach and the need for food will be done away with. But we will have a body that will express our personhood in a tangible way. 
And we're to hold our bodies in proper respect, even now. God created them, and He will recreate them. So we must respect them and use them according to His revealed intention in creating them. And for sure, the human body has a higher mission than the mere gratification of sensual appetites. While the Greek view was that the body was merely the perishing envelope of man, the biblical view is that the body is the abiding vehicle of man's spirit. And that alone should cause us to treat it with respect. But there's more. Not only has our body been created by God, but as a Christian, it has been joined to Christ. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? May it never be. Or do you not know? that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her. For he says the two will become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Paul reminds us here that when we become Christians, we actually become a part of Christ's body. Now, we generally think of that in terms of the church, that the church is the body of Christ and we're a part of it. But apparently there's even more to that figure than we commonly see. We actually, mystically, if you please, join ourselves to Christ himself. You know, he told us that just as he and the Father are one, so we are one with Him. And our bodies actually become a physical manifestation of Christ in a physical world. We give form to Him through our bodies, as His own flesh did in Galilee long ago, only to a lesser and imperfect degree. Now, I'll admit this is a little bit abstract. But Paul's application of this truth is not abstract at all. He asks, Shall we then take a member, the part of Jesus' body that we are, and make it a part of a harlot's body? Even the thought of such profanity makes the apostle cry out, May it never be! He goes on to explain that when a man and a woman enter into a sexual union, they become one flesh. Therefore, when a Christian enters into a sexual union, he makes Christ himself a part of that union. Now, within marriage, there's no problem. 
Since the husband-wife relationship is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church, he happily enters into that union with us. So in a Christian marriage, sex and spirituality can be expressed at the very same time. But if a Christian enters into an immoral sexual union, he causes the body of Christ to be defiled, along with his own. And we must never put the body of Christ into such a sinful liaison. We can't do whatever we want with our body. Because as a Christian, it is also Christ's body. And since our body is also Christ's body, it is a very sacred thing. There's even more. Not only has our body been created by God and joined together to Christ, it is also indwelt by the Spirit. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price? Therefore glorify God in your body. Paul's admonition is to flee immorality. Flee fornication. Don't toy with it. Don't put yourself into a compromising situation where you have to wrestle with it. Just flee from it. Like Joseph did when approached by Potiphar's wife. She had a hold of his coat. So he just slipped out of it and ran, leaving her holding his coat. We are to flee immorality. The story is told how Augustine was walking through a section of town where he had lived before becoming a Christian. And when a former woman companion saw him, he started to run. She called out, Augustine, why do you run? It is only I. He looked back and answered, I run because it is not I. He recognized that his body no longer belonged to himself. It had been changed. It now was not only joined to the body of Christ, but had in fact become a temple of the Holy Spirit. Flee immorality, Paul says, because every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Fornication, sexual immorality, is in a class by itself. Not that it is the most serious of sins, nor that it is unforgivable, but its relation to the body is unique. It is a sin against the body, 
and its origin is within the body. It comes from lust within. Now, there are other sins that affect the body. But even gluttony and drunkenness are sins that come from outside the body and are wrought on the body, not from within in the same sense as fornication. So fornication defiles the body as no other sin and disregards completely that the body of a Christian has become a temple of the Holy Spirit. Our body is no longer ours to do with as we please. We offered it up to God as a living sacrifice, according to Romans 12. And His Spirit has come to live within it. So it must be treated as His holy temple. Nothing less. Our body is no longer our own. We gave it away, and God accepted it at a great price. You know, obviously, God's Holy Spirit can't live just anywhere. And just because a man says, okay, God, you can live in my house, doesn't mean God moves right in. That house has to be cleansed. And it's got to be cleansed better than any sinner can clean it. No matter how hard you try to clean the floor, it will never come clean as long as your feet are dirty. Same here. God had to cleanse us before He could move in. And it cost Him dearly to do that. In fact, it cost him the life of his son. It took the blood of Christ to remove the filth in our hearts and lives. But he willingly paid the price because he loves us and wanted to move in. So by all means, let's not defile that temple to the place where he has to move out. Let's glorify God in our body. Let's respect it as God's creation. Let's never forget that it has been joined to Christ and is now a part of his body and that the Holy Spirit as actually taking up residence within it. Now, this sermon may have been a little shocking. It may have made you a tad uncomfortable. It made me a tad uncomfortable preaching it. But this is a message that needs to be heard not only do we need to hear it, our children, our grandchildren need to hear it. As a father, I have a special soft spot for daughters. Our daughters need to hear this. 
But we live in a world that has taken away all restrictions on sexual activity. The only thing that is going to keep your daughter pure is understanding who she is in Christ. Understanding that God created her and has a purpose for her. Understanding that she has joined herself in union with Christ. And that her body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. How amazing is that? If there is anything, anything at all, that will keep us pure in a sinful world, it's this understanding we get right here. Now, this sermon isn't more important than any other, but this message is vital. And I don't usually remind you that I have printed copies of it over there, but they're there. (laughs) If you want to take one and give it to somebody, please do so. And the messages that we preach are available online, thanks to Bill. They're there. And if you just go to chathamchristian.org, it's pretty easy. And you click on sermons or whatever it is you've got there. They're all there. You can hear it, you can read it, and you can share it. And hopefully you can live it. This is an important message. As we get into the seventh chapter in two weeks, it's going to be even more explicit than this, so get ready. It's important. It's not the most important thing. It's not the only thing. But it is very, very important. It's important that we understand who we are and what we are in Christ. We need to understand what it means to give ourselves to him. Again, it doesn't just mean we've joined a church and we gather on Sunday mornings. Right? It means we've given ourselves to him, body and soul. Don't just think in terms of some spiritual thing up there. Think of this. This is what you have given to Christ. Is your all on the altar a sacrifice laid Have you yielded your body and soul? It's an old hymn. It's not in our hymnal, like so many good ones. But we're going to sing it. And I pray that you've done it.